1: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin and how did they end? Let's find out on episode 48, The Oracle of Delphi. Previously on The Fan of History, the Olympic Games started in 776 BC. And right after that, the Western Zhou Dynasty fell. Meanwhile, Assyria is growing weaker through Urartu, and what is today Armenia is growing
1: ever stronger.
2: Dan, tell us, what is happening now?
1: All right, we are getting into the 760s BC now. And I think this will probably be my final attempt to cover a whole decade in one episode. So this could be a long one, as we are also talking about the legendary Oracle of Delphi. All right. But first, let's set the stage that we will return to at the end of the episode. Urartu. Argishti is the king of Urartu in the mountains there in eastern Turkey and Armenia today. It is the strongest state in the Near East, with Assyria as a close second. We have Argishti's Chronicles, he's the sixth king of Urartu, and we had him founding Yerevan, the capital of modern Armenia, in 782 BC. So we have Urartu with one of its strongest kings ever, while Assyria has a super weak king. Mm -hmm. But the important actor in Assyria is Shamshi-Ilu, the Tutanu, the field marshal, The great uh, general, who is an Aramean, but really an assimilated Assyrian. Right. And on the field of battle, Assyria will still always win any regular battle. But this is no regular battle because Urartu is hidden uh, or safe behind its mountains and fortresses. And having said that, we will return to that later. And now we will go to Greece.
2: All right. To Greece.
1: Yeah, there are a lot of city-states in Greece, and we've introduced a couple of them. And now I want to introduce two more powerful actors for the story to come. The first one is, we've talked about before, about Sparta, Corinth, Athens, and the two cities on Jeboa, Chalcis and old Eritrea or Lefkandi. Um, Now I'm going to talk about Thebes.
2: Thebes.
1: There is is a city in um, Egypt called Thebes as well. Right. And to distinguish them, we call the city in Greece, seven-gated Thebes. And that's often referred to in the Iliad. Oh. And the the city in Egypt is hundred-gated Thebes. (laughs) So it must be bigger.
2: I was about to say. It would at least have to be big enough to have one hundred gates. There. It's huge, <laughs> yeah.
1: And it hasn't been sacked for almost a thousand years. So, woe if anybody would sack Thebes in Egypt. Wow. But uh, back to Greece. This, the city of Thebes, was probably a Mycenaean stronghold before the Bronze Age collapse. So it has remained. It was probably super small during the Dark Age, but now it's growing big again. Have you have kids? You, oh yeah. Have you seen Have you seen the uh, Disney movie Hercules? Oh yeah, we've seen it. Yes. So this is this is the big city that Hercules goes to in the movie. That's Thebes. That's right. So it's an authentic <clears throat> photographic representation of Thebes. <laughs> yes, very stylized. Lots of columns everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Thebes is somewhat to the north of the rest of Greece and it will rise to become the most powerful city in the area through long and bitter wars and also because of climate change in the area which makes uh, the location of Thebes more more favorable than before. And this will be a great rival to Athens and that's a sign if a city-state is powerful it's a great rival to Athens. And The coolest thing in Thebes is the sacred band. And the sacred band of Thebes is a force composed of 150 homosexual lovers, uh, pairs of homosexual lovers. It's 150 married gay couples. Okay, And, And they will be a part of the final defeat of Sparta, but that is in the fourth century bc so that's a long way in the future wow.
2: this podcast so, i would say so this sacred band of thieves lasts for a very long time
1: i don't think i don't know if they're around at this time so oh, i just okay, okay. wanted to mention them because they're ah, real gotcha. cool. <laughs> um, now let's talk about argos argos is a dorian city just like sparta And they are the big rival, the big Dorian rival of Sparta. Like, who is the coolest Dorian city? And it often is Argos. So there is, oh, there's a 7th century oracle from Delphi, a statement from the oracle of Delphi, like a trailer for the oracle here. uh, Talking about uh, who are the best men in Greece. And uh, the Oracle says, the Chalcidians from Euboea are the best of men, but not the best of warriors, an honor reserved for the Argives. Dun, dun, so Argos dun. is often the number one Dorian city. <clears throat> and this, was, this area was brutally invaded by the Dorians who took it over. They have already tried to stop the Spartan expansion. We talked about uh, the Arg- Argives earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, the city itself is the capital of a fertile plain. There has been people living there since the Neolithic. It was also a um, Mycenaean stronghold before the Dorian invasion. And uh, the Dorian, uh, the Argives themselves think that this was the city was founded by the greatest king of the Dorians, Temenium. And the the people from Argos always think that they are the Leaders of all the Dorians. <laughs> right. But the Spartans do not agree. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. There are three hills on which the city of Argos are built, and you can find signs in these hills of very early Hellenistic cults. That is, they, these Dorians adapt the gods of Greece very, very early. Uh, Apollo Pythias is a favorite god of the area. And overall, the city's organization looks a lot like Sparta with the tribes and these factories, the uh, brotherhoods. But now, we are going to talk about the Oracle of Delphi. And I'm going to state uh, a claim that the Oracle Delphi is one of the best scams in history. It's a scam going on <laughs> for millennia. That's amazing. And it's... Really well done. There are many oracles in Greece at this time and later, but this one will rise to the very top, and it's the one we remember right today. Oh yeah. We already mentioned Oracle several times. Uh, the Oracle claims to be involved in the foundation of Sparta, but it's very likely that the Oracle isn't around. Uh, The oracle is located uh, in a very remote area, somewhat west of Corinth. But uh, people will go there because they really like this place. We also talked about the unwanted attention of Sparta, because the Spartans think that the oracle was involved in the foundation of their city. They really, really like the oracle. And they like the oracle a bit too much for the oracle. As this is a scam, they are really scared that the Spartans will discover that. <laughs> and you know the Spartans never wrote something. They wrote very little down. Right. They didn't like writing, but um, when writing reappears, which will happen very soon in the coming episode, the, the Spartans place a guy right next to the oracle, like writing down everything the oracle says. <laughs> and this is super dangerous for the oracle then, so... <laughs> right. But of course, Corinth is the closest big city, and Corinth will be a great supporter of the oracle. Also, Chalcis on Euboea and the island of Crete are really behind the oracle. So the oracle has strong backers. But now let's look at what the operation itself is like. So the the lead character, there is a lot of people involved here at the site. It's, no, it's, it be. is a shrine to Apollo Pythaeus. And the main character is the Pythia. Okay. This is a woman. She has to be over 50 years old. Okay. Uh, she, oh, you were saying?
2: Oh, no, I was, just, uh, I was just following along. Has to be over 50.
1: Yeah, yeah and she, she has to be a priestess of Apollo Pythius since uh, way back. And when she becomes the Pythia, This is a position for life. And later on, there will actually be three Pythias, probably because the Oracle needs to scam more people simultaneously. (laughs) And the life expectancy of the Pythia once she becomes the Pythia is very, very short. And this has given um, uh, people, this has made people think that she's actually poisoned by her physical position when she acts as the Oracle. But now we're going to follow a person who wants to go to the Oracle and get a statement from the Oracle. So when you arrive at the site, there is like <laughs> places to buy stuff and everything is expensive and, and you have to stand in line for a long time, for an unnecessarily long time because they want you to buy stuff and then you can actually bribe the the staff of the temple to get to the front of the line When you reach the front of the line you uh, encounter uh, a normal priest or someone working for the temple and they interview you and they prepare you They like want to know what you want to ask the Oracle. Mm-hmm. So they can prepare some fake answer I <laughs> sure. And then, of course, you have to pay the levy called the Pelanos. You also have to sacrifice an animal, which they probably then make into food for the staff of the temple. <laughs> so they, they get your money, they get your goat. And then, <laughs>
2: yes.
1: and then if you pass this, you get assigned a male priest, and he will lead you into the sanctuary to the Castalian spring. And this is a place where the pythia sits on a tripod, inhaling the vapors of the spring. And one of the theories is that these vapors are narcotic and hallucinogenic. So the the pythia is probably high as a kite when when she's making this answer. But you are not allowed to talk to the pythia. And if you talk about the Oracle of Delphi as a person, you, you mean the pythia. Okay, So only this priest that you brought along with you are allowed to talk to the Pythia. So you, you restate your question to the priest, and he talks to the Pythia, and the Pythia either does a very good act or is just high, but she answers in a translate-like state, and sometimes you she doesn't make much sense. So it's up to the priest to interpret whatever the Pythia does and then deliver the, uh, the, the oracle statement itself. And the answer is always ambiguous. The answer is very unclear. So then you have the problem that there are many sources of error here. So if, if the oracle statement turns out to be untrue, it could be either the priest's fault, Mm-hmm. He interpreted the <clears throat> trans statements wrong, or it could be your fault, or the <laughs> answer is so ambiguous that you could read anything into it. Right. But it's never the Pythia's fault. So the Pythia is a direct channel to Apollo, and she will always be correct. So you see here the, the way the scam works. That.
2: Oh, you, yeah.
1: Yeah, so you, you, you are already- safe.
2: Right, you leave it open-ended enough. Yes. That you can blame, yeah, either they're going to come back and thank you or blame you, but when they try to blame you, you're like, oh, no, no, it was you who had the problem all along.
1: And I believe that they, like, sack the priests uh, some of the time, that if a priest gets something wrong enough times, they're, oh, we had this bad priest, so
2: it was his fault. Well, okay, that's another good out.
1: But I expect that the other oracles, uh, they work, they are just the same thing. So now we have to look into why this oracle Delphi became so famous. And there are several reasons. I think, first of all, it's uh, blind luck. (laughs) They got something right and it became so famous. Uh, They have fantastic PR. This is like they're selling this act all over Greece, right? And early on, we are gonna spend a whole episode talking about how Greek colonization worked in the 730s because Greek colonization will explode. It has started a little, but there will be an explosion of Greek colonization and very early on the Oracle of Delphi is involved here. So the success of the colonization movement brings the oracle of Delphi to the top as well. So this is a
2: money-making, like serious money-making.
1: For over a thousand years they make serious money here. Because if you're pleased with the oracle statement and you everything works out for you, you're supposed to make a big gift to the oracle as well. Uh, I think also this operation is very well run that uh, this is one of the best oracle, the <laughs> the best oracle operations in Greece. So that, that helps as well. Right. And it seems that the, the Greeks are somewhat gullible because some of the things the oracle does is just insane that anybody believed. <laughs> um, there will also be uh, two conflicts in the 8th century BC. The Lelantine War and the Messenian War. We will spend a whole episode on each war, but the Oracle manages to choose the right side in these two conflicts, and that's that also brings the Oracle of Delphi to the top. And there will be some famous incidents later when the Oracle changes sides at exactly the right time, <laughs> and that also helps. But it's it's a super interesting thing to study during the time. We'll return to the oracle, of course, whenever anybody goes to the oracle. So it seems that this is about the time when the oracle got operational. It could happen like 20-30 years before, but it's about this time. The Mm -hmm. last recorded response is in 395 AD. So that's a lot later than this. Wow. And. Then the emperor, the Roman emperor, Theodosius the Great. I want to podcast about him one day. The Theodosius (laughs) the Great is the one who makes Christianity mandatory. Constantine the Great, he only made Christianity legal. Theodosius the Great makes it mandatory. And of course, that means that you can't have high old women (laughs) making statements to people. So Theodosius the Great shuts down the Oracle of Delphi. Forever in 395 AD.
2: If it was still making money, I wonder how he survived.
1: (laughs) He never got part of that money. (laughs) Yeah, we have 535 oracular predictions that are preserved. And as I said, we will mention them in the show when they are relevant and some of them are super hard to understand. Uh, But now, we are going to try to make an example here of how, how it could sound when you went to the oracle. <laughs> so now, this may not be very serious, but we'll, we'll give you three right. famous examples from history, exactly as they happened. So first we have the, the legendary lawgiver of uh, Sparta, Lycurgus. We talked about him before. And Lycurgus goes then. he has this thought that maybe I should end this order and found Sparta. So he goes to the oracle and I will now play the role of Lycurgus and hope that I meet the Pythia and get a, a nice answer. So Lycurgus comes into the Catalian spring and says, Hey, the oracle of Delphi, I want to... I'm having this thought. I want to found a city called Sparta. Is that is that a good idea?
2: Hey, like Argus, c- come into my my rich temple. C- give me just a minute. Hey, I you don't look like the Pythia.
1: I-, I thought it would be an old woman.
2: No, Are no, you- no, no, no. I'm I'm the De- I'm the Oracle, at Delphi University.
1: Okay, so. guess that will do.
2: All right. A man dear to Zeus, and all who have Olympian homes, you are Lycurgus. I am in doubt whether to pronounce you man
1: or god, but I think you are a god, Lycurgus. And Lycurgus was pleased. And then, in uh, 595 BC, The Athenian lawgiver, much less legendary than Lycurgus, Solon, goes to the oracle. And, uh, oh, hello, oracle of Delphi.
2: Oh, hey, hey, Solon, give me just a minute. Okay.
1: All right, you came to ask me a question? Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking about uh, taking the island of Salamis controlled by the city of Megara and the city of Kira. Is that a good idea? Okay, here's, here's what you're gonna want to do. First,
2: sacrifice to the warriors who once had their homes on this island, whom now the rolling plains of fair Asopia covers, laid in the tombs of heroes With their faces turned to the sunset.
1: Hey, that makes perfect sense. Thank you, Oracle of Delphi. No problem. And then in 560 BC, Croesus of Lydia, uh, he runs a trial of oracles and discovers that the Oracle of Delphi is the best. And then he makes the question to the Oracle of Delphi, Of course, Croesus of Lydia has a really big thing to wonder about in 560 BC. So, oh, Oracle of Delphi, I have a question. Shoot. I am thinking of making war on the Persians, because the Persians are nasty I want their stuff.
2: Whoa, 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 whoa. If you make war on the Persians, a great nation will fall.
1: Oh, it sounds great, but I I have a... Here's a lot of money because I'm really rich. Alright, alright. I have another question. Go for it. (laughs) Will my monarchy last long? Whenever
2: a mule... Shall become sovereign king of Medeans, then, Median, delicate foot, flee by the stone-shrouded Hemus, flee, and think not to stand fast, nor shame to be chicken-hearted.
1: Thank you, mighty Oracle of Delphi. And uh, that's what it would sound like then,
2: <laughs> or something. We, we couldn't get an old
1: woman for the podcast, so. <laughs> so yeah, now...
2: I, I wasn't going to ask my wife to play that role. That seems <laughs> seems de- destined for failure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, we are going back to the chronological narrative now for the 760s BC starting then naturally in 769 BC as all years count the wrong way in mm-hmm. in the era BC. Right. So first we're going to talk about Eriba Marduk. And Marduk is the main god of the Babylonians. So this is a Babylonian king. Eriba Marduk becomes the king of Babylon in 769 BC. He is the first king of the Chaldean tribe called Bit-Yakini. So a Chaldean is now on the throne of Babylon. That is always bad for the Assyrians because the Assyrians and Chaldeans just do not get along. But Eriba Marduk uh, makes uh, some... uh, He does stuff and uh, it's good for Babylon. He is... (laughs) He has a policy for illegal immigrants. These guys are always Arameans, living like orcs in the fields. Mm -hmm. And he drives them out from the fields of Borsippa and Babylon, meaning that uh, agriculture can resume and uh, the cities can thrive again. He also restored Marduk's throne in the Esagila in Babylon. This is the main temple of Marduk. And when Marduk gets a nice place to sit again, people start paying attention. This is... Great times are ahead for Babylon. There is a work called the Era Epic, and it may be from the reign of Reba Marduk. This is one of the famous works of Babylon, one of the big sources for Babylonia. Mm -hmm. And in it, Reba Marduk is titled The Re-Establisher of the Foundation of the Land. And that's a pretty cool title, so... He's doing something good for Babylon. Yeah. Meanwhile, in the same year, 769 BC, the Assyrians, uh, or some Assyrians, attacked the Itua And uh, we have faced this mystery before. We are not sure what the Ituans are up to, or where they are, or even who they are. Uh, they are a, an Aramean tribe, but why are the Assyrian main campaign of the year attacking this small Aramean tribe. And why have they attacked it before? And why didn't it work out? So how are these guys still around? Right. The campaign is probably led by shamshi ilu the field marshal. It's the epony- ep- uh, eponymy year of baal i Ilia, the governor of Rafa. And uh, I find it strange this name Baal, but it's not with two A's, so maybe it has nothing to do with the Phoenician God. But in 768 BC, we get the really, really bad statement in the eponym Chronicle, the worst we can get. <laughs> now, it's not the worst, but it's really bad. Because the eponym Chronicle says for 768 BC, the king stayed in the land. And this means no campaign for usher. Uh, that's that's not good. Nope, that's real bad. Meanwhile, in Urartu, uh, 768 BC, we have mentioned before King Utupurshi of Diaki. Do you remember him?
2: I, I remember I remember the name. <laughs> I don't remember yeah, what a, he did.
1: Argishti is the only source, because earlier he has claimed that this King Utupurshi of Diaki is a vassal of Argishti. And it's like his only vassal. We don't hear any other (laughs) vassal being mentioned. And now he goes to war with him. So uh, he's not that good at having vassals, it seems. (gasps) We don't know where this is.
2: He should have replaced them with eunuchs.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably. But Argishti wins this war with his one vassal and advances into the land of Abnuliani. Uh, which we don't know where it is. And this marks the end of the Chronicle of Aragishti. And we have no sources for Urartu in 768 to 763 BC, Hmm. which is kind of strange because it seems that Urartu is doing great in this period. But it's a long time ago, so that's the stuff that happens. Right. So for 767 BC, we once again go back to Assyria, and they record an attack on the Ghananati. And this is in Babylonian territory. We have reason to believe that this campaign is actually led by the Assyrian king. And you probably don't remember who is king in Assyria now. Hmm.
2: Is it Asherdan?
1: You're reading the notes, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's Ashadan the yes. third, and the reason he's hard to remember is that he is a very forgettable character, not doing much. But we don't know what happened in this campaign, what the long-term effect was, or what the rising Babylonian king, Eriba Marduk, thought about it. It is a possibility that uh,
0: Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: Uh, The Babylonian king actually requested this campaign. So the Ganonati maybe was making trouble for Babylon but we just don't know. Hmm. Also in 767 BC, we have news from Judah. In the small kingdom of Judah, Amaziah the king, he dies. And we, we talked about him before. He uh, was co-ruling Judah with his son, Uzziah, right. since he was released, since Amasaiah was released from captivity in Israel, in Samaria. And... Um, It seems that uh, Amaziah could have been assassinated because there's a statement that uh, the sons of his father's assassin was hunting Uziah. And Uziah... No, that the sons... uh, Sorry, it was Amaziah's father's assassin
2: who
1: was out to get Amaziah as well. And to escape this conspiracy, Amaziah fled to the city of Lachish. This is a huge city in Israel and Lachish will play a prominent part in an episode before we leave this uh, century because Lachish will be raised to the ground. Dun, dun, and in, dun. in the city of Lachish now, 60 somewhat years before its destruction, a messiah is slain and his body is taken back to Jerusalem and buried in the royal tombs And then Uzziah can take over the sole kingship of Judah without incident. So it makes you suspect that maybe Uzziah had something to do with this chase and assassination of the king of Judah. Hmm. It does seem suspicious. Definitely suspicious. For the next year in 766 BC, we have very little. We have an Assyrian horse raid on the Medes. (laughs) Let's attack the Medes. Those poor Medes. <laughs> but it's been a while since they did that, so uh, good for Assyria. <laughs> it's the eponym year of Musalim Inurta, the governor of Tille. And that's all I have for 766 BC. But in 765 BC, we have a plague in Assyria caused The weak kingship, the power of the nobles, the extreme power of Shamshi-Ilu is just not the only problems of Assyria, because now Assyria will start to get hit by disease and natural disasters, and everything just goes wrong. We don't know what this plague was, but we haven't seen much mention of plague before, so it had to be pretty serious to be noted. Now it's not just the king stayed in the land, but it's a plague uh, there is also a campaign against Hattarica, which is in Babylonia. Okay. So, maybe the, the Assyrians are still going into Babylonia on the request of the Babylonian king. because it doesn't seem to be a real Assyrian-Babylonian war again. And in 760, uh, 764 BC, the III cannot go on campaign again, so nothing happens. Man, that... They are really,
2: uh, you know, riding a fine line of their faith.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's not like the days of Ashur Nasipal. Yeah. And you can, these campaigns are made to honor Asher. You have to go on campaign every year. And now when this does not happen, the Assyrians are worried. What does Asher think now? Are they really his favorite people anymore?
2: Well, they do have a plague, Dan.
1: I think it's yeah, and that's only the beginning, <laughs> because <laughs> things will get worse for Assyria. In uh, 763 BC, Argishti of Urartu dies, and it's the general consensus of historians that this guy was the greatest king of Urartu of the kingdom's entire history. Wow. Erg- Argyzhti is buried in a great chamber tomb, hewn into the face of the rock in his citadel at Van, and not in the north where he built his new cities and had his greatest successes. And the chronicles we have found from the time of they were buried next to him. Huh. So, so ends the greatest king of Assyria, but not if you ask Sarduri II, his son... <laughs> who now becomes the king of Urartu. And Sarduri II will rule Urartu from 763 to 735 BC, and he will think that he is the greatest king of Urartu. So now I want you to read the full title of Sarduri II in your best Mesopotamian dictator voice. Right.
2: As an ancient Mesopotamian dictator. Yes. The Magnificent King, the Mighty King, King of the Universe, King of the Land of Nairi. A king having no equal to him, a shepherd to be wondered at, fearing no battle. A king who humbled those who would not submit to his authority.
1: And it's uh, interesting to note that he has stolen the Assyrian title King of the Universe. Which I haven't found uh, Asher the III referring to himself as the king of the universe. He, uh, he let his trademark lapse, and
2: this guy <laughs> yeah. picked it up.
1: <laughs> he did. There are also extensive chronicles recovered from uh, Sarduri II, and he will be an important person in our story for a long time to come. And now I want to talk about the little kingdom that could, that will enter our story soon. It's uh, the city of Melid and the kingdom of Kamanu, which is then ruled from the city of Melid. This is in modern Aslan Tepe, near Malatya in Turkey. You, you should probably locate Lake Van on a map because this great salt lake is... The center of Iraqian activity for such a long time. And it sort of give, knowing where this lake is, is gives a very good impression of what the what the Erotian landscape is like. But if you go straight west from the lake, you get to this place. And we have mentioned this kingdom before. It's a Neo Hittite state. They speak a language called Luvian. And it's uh, located in a pretty bad spot because. If the Assyrians get aggressive again, this is one of the first places they will hit. And it's also like right in the face of Urartu. And it's ruled by Kela Ruada, the son of (laughs) Shaku. Wow. So maybe this maybe this will become relevant in our story. And now it does because in (laughs) 78, yes. Saduri II attacks Melid, the capital of this small kingdom. And it's like the Assyrian kings of old. He wants to make a great impression in the first year of his kingship. So he goes immediately to the west, um, attacks Melid, captures a city called Sasi from uh, Kelaruada then, and uh, the king of Melid, Kelarada, he has to yield to the Urartian aggression. And he pay tri- pays tribute in gold, silver, and cattle. <clears throat> Saduri II, who really loves fortresses, as he is an Urartian king, so he knows that fortresses is a great way of keeping the Assyrians out. He takes eight important fortresses that Melid controlled, he also attacks neighboring places, Kanilshi and Musani. And this is a strategically important move for Saduri II, because he now has one foot firmly placed in North Syria, and he's starting to influence the New Hittite kingdoms of North Syria. So now he could, with control of North Syria, envelop Assyria and start a new front against the Assyrians. Because the old front right north of Assyria is like really stalemated with the Urartian fortresses, but this is an open front, and with the help of the new Hittites, Sadruri II could actually invade Assyria. Oh. And this, is, this is right next to Shamshi-ilu's base of power. And we don't know much about what Shamshi does in this decade, but he is still around. He has been around for a very long time now, and he will be around for a very long time to come. Hmm. Chang'e is this super interesting general character in Assyrian history. So now Assyria is like, okay, we're getting enveloped, there's been a plague. And then on June 15th in 763 BC, there is a total eclipse of the sun over the Assyrian capital.
2: Oh, I was about to ask, how do we know June 15th? Oh, it's an eclipse.
1: Yes, uh, astronomers can find the exact date of this eclipse. Oh, yeah. And it's noted in the Epinom Chronicle. This is also one of the ways we know that the Assyrian dates are really accurate. It is the year of Bursagile, the governor of Gusana. And now the Assyrians are super worried because eclipses, not good signs. (laughs) And they're starting to speak about the fact that Assyria might be doomed. No. And then we have a revolt in Assyria, lasting two years, lasting into 762 BC. And... We only have one detail here, but that detail is very worrying, that the, there is a revolt in Libby Ali. But Libby Ali is part of the city of Ashur itself. Ashur is not the capital anymore, but it's the main religious center. It's the main temple of Ashur. It's like the heart of the Assyrian Empire. And there's a revolt in the city itself. We also know that at some point Ashurbanipal III does some restoration work on the Temple of Asher. And it might be right after this revolt to give a sign to the people that uh, no, no, there's nothing to worry about here. Look, Asher is really happy, I'm rebuilding his temple. But Asher is not happy.
2: No, he can't, uh, he can't appease him that easy.
1: And as the rebellion goes on for a year or more, there is no royal campaign. And uh, we really don't know what caused this rebellion or what happened, but at the end of it, the III is still in power. So whatever the rebellion tried to do, it did not manage to uh, throw down the king. And the family of the III has been kings for over a thousand years at this point. So right. Actually, usurping the king is uh, not in most people's mind. It's not an option. It's not something you do.
2: Right. When you have generation after generation born into it, convincing them there's something better, super
1: hard. It would take an exceptional person to succeed in usurping the Assyrian kingship. And uh, that is, that could happen very soon. (laughs) So, in 762 BC, we also have a Greek colony being established. This is quite early for Greek colonies, but we already established uh, some Greek colonies. This is in Libya, and it's the colony of Cyrene. And the fact that it is in Libya is pretty interesting, that's far away from Greece. The date is contested. The other date is 630 BC, which would not be sensational at all, because in the 630s there are Greeks everywhere. But the founder is the city of Chalcis on the island of Euboea. And uh, we will probably mentioned small Greek colonies being founded, but the main episode will be in the 730s BC and we'll discuss the, the way the colonization of the Greeks worked, why it happened, and why nobody else did this, except the Phoenicians. But they will also look at the difference between the Phoenician colonization and the Greek colonization.
2: Okay.
1: So Sounds the good. action for the rest of the decade comes from the II. And his chronicles are not as easily dated as gishtis, so we don't really know when he did stuff. But I placed it here in 762 to 760 BC. So uh, he goes uh, from Lake Sivan. Lake Sivan was partly colonized by the Urartians already. He fights Murini, the king of Abialniki. (laughs) And he fights Uilikuki on the west (laughs) bank of Lake Sivan. He also defeats Sinar Libi, the king of Duliku, in the land of Luiki. and once again, these lands must be really small, mountain states, or uh, Saduria are just making up these names. And when I looked into this, I found Lueki on a map, and it's on the southwest bank of Lake Sivan. This is not Lake Van, it's another lake. Uh, hmm. But I thought the southwest bank of the lake was already under Rachan controls. So maybe this was a rebellion of sorts. But these, these Rachan campaigns are really, really hard to understand. Okay, we have to check in with Assyria once again, then, for the last remaining years of the decade. And in 761 to 760 BC, we have some more revolts. One of the records talks about the revolt in Arafa. This is also very close to the city of Asher, and it could be like a related revolt to the earlier one. So maybe there was a four-year civil war here. Wow. But so, but if there was a civil war, the Assyrians uh, stay true to what they used to do, so they just don't talk about it. And Ashurdan Dan III is still on the throne. But in the last years of this decade, there are no Assyrian campaigns whatsoever against anyone because they are occupied with these revolts and there will be more revolts in the 750s BC and more plague.
2: That is unfortunate.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so the Assyrians have fallen a long way since the days of Shalmaneser III. In 761 BC, Ereba Marduk, this re-establisher of Babylon, he dies, and of course, as usual, pretty much, we have no idea how he died, (laughs) he's considered a great king, he is succeeded by Nabu Suma Iskun. I don't know if there was any relation, there probably wasn't, and we don't know how this happened, why this guy becomes the king. Nabu Suma Iskun will rule Babylonia from 761 to 748 BC and it will not go as well as Ariba Marduk's reign did. We also know a character from this time that will return in our story and it's Nabu Suma Imbi who is the governor of Borsippa. And this is a super important position in Babylon because Borsippa is the city of truth and justice and one of the biggest and most important Babylonian cities. So Nabusuma Iskun on the throne of Babylonia and Nabuzuma Imbi the governor of Borsippa. In the year 760 BC we have another dated event that we can look back and find in the geological record because we have a major earthquake, a huge earthquake in Israel oh. This is a super destructive earthquake and it mentioned, it's mentioned in the Bible in Amos 3.14. It's also mentioned in other sources. We found archaeological evidence of this destruction in Israel and in Jordan. Lachish shows a huge destruction in the city from 760 BC, distinguished from the destruction that Lachish will suffer later this decade. Uh, so, I don't know how you do earthquake archaeology, but it seems that the Richter scale rating of this earthquake is 8.2. That,
2: that is huge. That's a big and it one.
1: Is, there is a fault zone uh, by the Dead Sea, and this is the biggest earthquake in this area for 4,000 years. So, yeah, huge earthquake. Huge.
2: Yeah, I, I believe it. We had a 5.0 up just north of us about a week ago.
1: Oh, what happened?
2: Um, well, people pretty much believe that the the fracking that's going on in Oklahoma is causing earthquakes. But yeah, it was a 5.0. And you could oh. feel it. He is in Tulsa, which is about four hours away. And you could feel it here at my house.
1: Okay, what's the destruction of a 5.0 earthquake?
2: Um, there's some cracked foundations and walls and stuff, but nothing, nothing too major. Stuff it can still be repaired, but yeah, it goes up exponentially from there, though.
1: Yeah, so 8.2 is uh,
2: really big. Oh yeah, exponentially higher than a five.
1: Uh, I was going to skip Egypt. But then I um, read about what our next episode will be about. So I have to mention Egypt. (laughs) Okay. Uh, We'll talk about Egypt again in our next episode. But there are... It's in chaos. Uh, Soon there will be three dynasties. Dynasties? What did I decide to call it? (laughs) What do you say? We say dynasty. Dynasty. Okay, three dynasties are going on at the same time in Egypt very soon. The 22nd, the 23rd, and the 24th. And there will not be order in Egypt until 728 BC. And we'll spend the whole episode talking about how order is restored in Egypt. And it will be restored by the Kushites coming from the south. And in 760 BC, a guy called Kashta becomes the king of Kush. This is almost certainly not his name, because Kashta <laughs> means the guy from Kush. I was about to say, it sounds a lot like Kush. <laughs> yeah, Kashta of Kush. That's uh, like the guy from Kush, from Kush. He is the father of Pie, who is a very famous guy in Egyptian history. And it's hard to tell, actually. It's, uh, it's been... Portrayed in histories as very easy to tell, but it's super hard to tell who does what of these two characters. So Kashta and his son Pia will be important in our story, but I will go with what I think the main historian idea is that Kashta rules Kush from 760 to 752 BC and he will be the main character of our next episode which will probably name Kashta, King of Kush.
2: (laughs) Hey, our our titles are very straightforward, Dan.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and uh, we change them sometimes, so I don't know if that will be his name, but that's the working name right now. We are now in 760 BC, despite the earthquake, in the golden age of Israel and Judah. This is a great time for Israel and Judah. We have Uzziah on the throne of Judah, and Jeroboam II, ruling Israel. And when we talk about these kingdoms, we must remember that Israel is a lot more powerful than Judah. Judah is a tiny kingdom, Israel is a big one for the area. But together, these two guys rule a kingdom almost as big as the legendary kingdom of David. Uh, In the archaeological record, you can see the wealth of this era. Israel and Judah control important trade routes. They have good relations once again with Phoenicia. There is there is prosperity. Everything is great. Moab, Ammon, and Edom are vassal states. They probably stopped paying tribute to uh, the Assyrians because the Assyrians are nowhere to be seen, <laughs> because they are worried about eclipses, revolts, and plagues. Right. Uh, in this. Around this time, Uzziah beats up the Philistines, uh, the city of Gath, the city of Ashdod, and the city of Jabne. They are to the southwest of Israel, so Uzziah gains even more important trade route access to the coast uh, in the south. Uh, Uzziah fortifies uh, Jerusalem as well, and we can see signs of, yeah, we can see clear signs of this prosperity in all over you and Israel. But the prophets are complaining. <laughs> and they are especially complaining about all the luxury in Israel and Judah. at this time. They're like, you have forgotten the ways of the Lord. Uh, bad things will happen to you. <laughs> and uh, they are uh, right. Over <laughs> in China, we have the spring and autumn period going on. The nobles are in control. We did lose the Western Zhou Dynasty in the last episode, so now it's the Eastern Zhou Dynasty. We have King Ping ruling (laughs) China. And this guy will be the puppet king of China until 720 BC. There are no more heavenly armies of the Zhou Dynasty. They are demobilized. And its (laughs) records are really poor for the next 100 years. Uh, eventually a new system will arise where the kings give the title of hegemon. Is that the right way to pronounce that word? You know,
2: I'm going to go with that. I, you know, I don't see it very often, and that's pretty close to how I say it in my head. So.
1: <laughs> okay, so the, the leader of the state with the most powerful military in China will be the hegemon, and it's very, very similar to the shogun position in later Japan, the hegemon is supposed to protect the weaker states from barbarians mm-hmm. and the Zhou the King, of course, from intruding barbarians. And there are a lot of intruding barbarians. They are the Northern Dai, the Southern Man, the Eastern G, and our old friends, the Western Rong, which includes the dog people. The dog people, yes. So a new era in China and uh, horrible records from China in the way that they don't tell us much. So China, we kind of leave our story now, but I'll uh, okay. we'll probably talk about how little we know about China. Again. <laughs> <laughs> and All that right. ends a very long episode for the 760s BC. So now we'll split episode. up the decades in, in several episodes.
2: Alright, sounds good. Next week, we will cover the 760s BC, the, in, the Assyrian 750s. 750s, excuse me. The 7th or down 760s, 750s BC. The Assyrian Empire spirals downward. Oh, yes. Don't forget, please go to YouTube, uh, like, subscribe, share. It would really help us out. Also, give us a review on iTunes. We'll read it. And. We'll read it out loud. <laughs> on the, we will. On the show. Not just read it, mind you. We'll say the words.
1: All right. Well. Uh, I have hmm. something to say about the Patreon. Yes. At patreon.com slash fan history, you can contribute to this show. If you really like what we do, please consider giving us a dollar an episode on Patreon. And if we get enough uh, sponsors on Patreon, we will make this show weekly instead of bi-weekly. Yeah, I, I hope you're cool. still on for that. <laughs> oh,
2: sure. If we get some, if if the patrons want it, I say we give it to them. And there's one way you can show us.
1: Yeah, and we're now. This works uh, pretty good for us. We have no problems uh, doing a bi-weekly show, but we want to push this to the next level, and you can help us. So please do.
2: Yeah, if you again, if you enjoy the content, we'd like to give you more.
1: If you'd like Go to make you. a PayPal donation or so, just message uh, us on facebook.com/fanofhistory. Yeah. And I'll give you the PayPal details.
2: Sounds good to me. Also facebook.com/fanofhistory It's a good place to reaches. us. Um, the fan of history wordpress.com if you want to get in touch with Dan on social media at Dan Horning at, on Twitter or me at Cerulean Says Hi
1: so for hey one more thing what, oh sure sure <laughs> um, oh no, I forgot it oh Dan <laughs> <laughs> No, yes I remembered it okay uh, if you're following the series Timeline of World History on our YouTube channel search YouTube for Fan of History Uh, Shane Sowersby from England has done a great series that I read about all of world history from 200,000 BC. He got to like uh, the 7th millennium BC and then the structure sort of proved that this project was impossible. So he is reworking Timeline into another show that will sort of talk more about specific areas. And I know that right now he's working on uh, the the rise of civilization in Mesopotamia in like 6,000 BC. Wow. So if you're interested in that, check out our YouTube channel. Alright, now I'm finished, for real.
2: Okay, for real. Alright, well, for this week, I am Brennan. And I'm Dan. And this has been The Fan of
1: History. And Kashta is coming. Dun, dun, dun,
2: dun. if you enjoyed this podcast please consider supporting us on patreon patreon.com fan of history just a dollar an episode would help us out thanks and see you next time